Welcome to They Live by Film, a film discussion podcast focusing on the Criterion channel and beyond. My name is Adam Lundy, and I am joined as always by my co-hosts, Chris Haskell and Zach Bryant. How are you doing today, guys? Doing good. Hey. Doing good. good. Happy November. Happy noir November. I hope everyone will be watching plenty of noirs this November. Yep. I've got my uh, Columbia Noir 1 set from Indicator that I'll be going through. Nice. There's a lot of, there's some decent movies in that one. I haven't, I haven't, I have all four. I haven't watched as much from the latter two. Uh, actually, I only, I haven't even watched any of the latter two except for one I'd watched, watched previously. But um, they're, they're, they're like, I'm not going to lie, like the film quality is an absolute mixed bag. Um, but they're 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 at least they're they're fun and the the set itself is really nice. Yeah, definitely. What about you, Zach? Are you still? Is there a different genre of horror you'll be watching? Or are you going to try something different? Um, you know, it's one of those deals where I feel like I watch so many movies in October. I'm a little burned out, and I'm like, I've barely watched anything this month. Like, yeah, I, I think I watched I'm... like four or five things, including what we're talking about today. Hey, speaking I, of that, I know we have to jump in, but you, we both had, or, or y'all both had goals at the beginning of the year in terms of quantity of films. How are y'all doing towards yeah. those goals? Oh, I was um, just about to say, I have 10 minutes, or 10, 10 minutes, 10 films to hit my 300 goal. So I'm just taking it easy now for the rest of the year because I, I was the same in October. I've kind of burnt myself out a bit. So like I've only, I think I've only watched maybe like, what are we on? We're on the 7th of November. I'd be surprised if I've clocked more than three films this month so far. Four. I've watched four films this month so far. So I'm just kind of cooling it. I haven't watched anything this weekend. Um, I'm just cooling it down a bit because I only have 10 to go for my targets. So I'm just not going to burn myself out. Yeah. I'm at uh, 333. Um, I'm, I could hit 400, but the way I feel right now, probably not. I would at least hit the 365, which is kind of the main thing, but. Yeah, it's good. Cool. It's good to target. I meant to see. Oh, it's not under diary on Letterbox. Where is it under film? You got to go to stats and go to your stats. Name. Yeah, stats oh, and yeah. then choose this here and then check how many you've logged. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I see two twenty one. So, uh, two hundred eighty four. So sixteen, I guess, to get to three hundred. Yeah, it's a good target. It's kind of like a lose goal for me every year. I don't. It's not like a hard fast goal, but. I'll See, I was naive at the beginning of the year and so, say, you know what, 500 is doable. And then I was like, no, it's not. No. I didn't want to play out on it. Like, unless you're like unemployed or, you know, yeah, I, that's the only way I can think someone can get to 500 films. Either you don't sleep or you just have nothing to do during the day. <laughs> Need to become there's an insomniac. A, that's what I'm learning. There's a guy that I follow. He's actually super nice uh, to, to me. I really, I really like him. But, uh, he is goes at a pace that I just it blows my mind. So this year he's registered either rated or reviewed thirteen hundred and eight movies. I, need to I mean, do the maths have, some of those have got to be shorts, right? Like, oh yeah, they'd have to. I be. mean, thirteen hundred eight, and that's ninety minutes just on an average ninety minute movie. Um, divide by surely it's going to be at least three or four films a day. Yeah, it's about three. Like, like that's eighty-one a, days worth of movies. Eighty-one days. Jeez, that's not bad. Yeah, three sixty-five times four is fourteen hundred, and that I mean, 
whatever, you know, this person's name is Tim. He's definitely on pace to hit 1400. So it's essentially four films a day, right? That's crazy. But I mean, who knows? Like retired, like unemployed, like you said. Like Oh, yeah. See, the main problem I have is that there's too much choice. <laughs> like I waste, I, I spend more time choosing what film to watch than I do actually watching films. Which is why we have a film club. That way we don't yeah. have to choose. Like I, like the, the thought of me having to choose four films to watch in a day. No, I wouldn't be able to do it. I would just waste so much time choosing in between each one. I've had like maybe a hint, like maybe two or three days this year where I've watched four movies, but I already knew, like I knew I had the day off and I already knew exactly what I was going to watch. And that's, that's happened like two times, yeah. but three, but I did three that is the max. Day. Yeah. Yeah. Three is the max I've done in a day. I've done it a few times this year. I did it on Halloween. I watched three films on Halloween. Um, and then a, a few other weekend days throughout the year, I've watched three, but that's, I haven't watched four in the end of the day. I think it's a matter of just like showing, waking up every day and like doing it again and again and again. I think by by February or March, I would have to take a break. That's just like a, an amazing clip to keep. Yeah, that that's just a, that that would that would burn me out super fast. Mm-hmm. Um, cool. We'll, look, we'll we'll crack into this week's episode. Um, so uh, before actually before we crack into this week's episode, just to give another quick plug to the Patreon, uh, patreon.com forward slash they live by film. There's plenty of content up there already, unedited versions of the last two podcasts, as well as October's newsletter. And November's newsletter will be posted in or around the 25th of November, give or take a couple of days. Uh, it'll be the last in, in the sort of last week of the month, and that's going to continue on every month with exclusive reviews and tips for what's going to be coming up, a few little sneak peeks and things like that as well. So uh, if you're interested in you know, con- you know, chatting with us directly, you can comment. We're going to be doing polls next year as well. So you want to chat with us directly if you want to support the podcast and the website uh pop on over to patreon.com the link is in the description uh, so now we will actually pop into the the first film of this week which is the 1970 film i guess we can call it a film and um, it's original cast album company it is a pseudo doc musical documentary by da pennebaker um probably like one of the most well-known sort of avant-garde documentarian, especially from this era in the 60s and 70s. Um, just to give you a sort of overview, I would say a brief overview, but it's actually not very brief. The synopsis that's on IMDb. Uh, basically, um, Stephen Sondheim's musical company opened on Broadway in the spring of 1970, and tradition dictates that the cast recording is done on the first Sunday after opening night. D.A. Pennebaker, the now legendary documentarian, filmed the production of the original cast recording, the back and forth between Sondheim and the performers, and the dynamic of trying to record a live performance. The film climaxes, I'm not going to spoil how it climaxes. <laughs> Why would they have that in the IMDb description? It's a bit strange. <laughs> and we, I guess we don't have to talk about the film now. That pretty much sums it all up. Uh, <laughs> uh, like, I... I, yeah, I had a really tough time rating this, and you would know if you're if you're listening and you've 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 watched this, you pr- probably agree. Um, I had a hard time, you know, rating this because it's just it's just something on its own completely. It's it's not really a film. It's just sporadic shots of people performing and recording and talking about recording and performing. And there's no narrative, there's no voiceover, none of the stuff you would normally see in a documentary, none of that's really here. It's just moments sort of presented over the space of what, 50, 60 minutes. Um, 
but it was really enjoyable. I I, I did like it. It was, it was entertaining at the absolute very least. Um, what did you guys think, Chris? What was your sort of thoughts on this? Yeah. So, okay. Uh, there's, there's a lot I want to talk about here. There's so many different individual components that I think are interesting. Um, but my internet's going really slow. So while I look it up on the issue pictures, Zach, do you mind getting started? And then I'll, I'll have the, um, the issue pictures up. Um, so I guess I'll, I don't want to be negative because I think it does what it wants to well. I just kind of found it a little dull because it just, it didn't interest me. Like I felt like if I was like really into Broadway or into musicals, like I like some musicals, but it had its fascinating points, but I'll be honest, I thought it felt a little like a drag to get through even at 50. I'm like, I'm glad it wasn't two hours because 50 minutes was kind of enough for me. Yeah, I'm not a musical guy either. I know a lot of people in our film club are sort of into musicals and stuff, but uh, I'm definitely not. I wasn't a big fan of the actual music itself, except for, you know, that one particular song that, that they do towards the end was kind of cool. Um, but yeah, I wasn't a particular fan of the music itself. I was more so a fan of how they how they sort of presented them making the music, if that makes sense. Uh, yeah, Chris, I guess it feels a little unfocused and that may have been part of it yeah. for me as well. Like just yeah. by design, it's unfocused. Okay, uh, actually, this, this might sneak, kind of be a sneaky, fun discussion, but based on what y'all are saying so far, I want to I uh, lovingly challenge some of this. But uh, They Shoot Pictures has it at 7180, so the world generally agrees with what y'all are saying. <laughs> it's not, you know, there are, there are 7,179 movies that are rated higher than this. Um, I don't think if it, I mean, I, I did like it, so I want to say that. If it wasn't Pennebaker, I don't think this movie probably would have got much attention. Um, although Company was a popular musical in its time, I don't think it's had the legs that like some of the other Sondheim musicals have had. Um, are y'all familiar with Sondheim at all? Generally, in terms of like some of the big musicals that he's associated with, I know he exists. I, I know he exists, but I couldn't tell you a single musical he's done other than Company, and I didn't know Company existed until I watched this. So there you go. And I mean, to be fair, What's I can name, name like Andrew Weber. <laughs> like, that's about all I can name. Yeah, what, like West Side Story is a big one. Um, All right, okay. uh, the funny thing happened on the way to the forum is a big one. Uh, Gypsy is a big one. Sweeney Todd's a big one. All oh, right, okay. Um, yeah. I'm sure I'm missing a few more, but he was kind of he was famous for if Andrew Lloyd Webber was the Steven Spielberg of musicals in terms of like you generally leave his musicals feeling good. You know, Sondheim was a little bit heavier, a little darker, maybe like a little bit more of an auteur, uh, so to speak, uh, in, in that world. Um, uh, and, and I think, you know, this was intended to be a recurring segment that never happened because this is by, by the time they finished this particular documentary, um, some of the, the crew or some of the, the, uh, the people that were leading the production of company actually wound up, I think, did they say like leading a studio or something like, like getting a job at MGM and like leading a studio or something or um, anyways, but they only shot one of these. So this is supposed to be the one of, of you know, part one of many. Uh, and so we're getting this little kind of glimpse into American, you know, musical cinema in the seventies. Um, is that right? For some reason I'm doubting myself. Was it 1980? 1970. Yeah. 1970. Yeah. Um, so anyways, from, from that angle, I think it's super interesting. Uh, uh, I, 
used to do musicals. I don't have a great voice. I was always more like in speaking roles. Like the only thing I ever brought was I could be generally like big and loud and and, and kind of funny. And so they put me usually in the chorus with a part that was like, uh, I didn't have to change notes a lot. <laughs> I never, definitely never had uh, solo roles. Um, but the, the, I guess there's a couple of things on display here that are may maybe make this niche. Uh, but I just wanted to ask you all a question really quick before I make my point. Have you all seen either Jimmy plays Monterey or uh, what's the big one that he's um, Monterey uh, Pop. Monterey Pop. Yeah. Yeah. Have you all seen Monterey Pop? I have. Yeah, it's awesome. I haven't. I've wanted to, but I've never watched it. It's really good. Okay. So, Adam, it, what did you like about it? Because it's the same. Um, no, I don't want. I guess you didn't critique this movie necessarily, but the points you said were kind of made you neutral on this, or the same way that he shot Monterey Pop, right? Well, so with Monterey Pop, okay. So, well, first off, it's easier for me to like Monterey Pop because I like the music that was in Monterey yeah. Pop. So that's first off. Exactly. It's easier for me to like that because. Okay. You know, it's, you know, Jimi Hendrix, Mamas and the Papas, you know, they're the kind of music, that's the kind of music I like. Mm -hmm. Musical music, showed music is not really my cup of tea. I'm never, I'm not a musical guy. So first off the bat, it's easier for me to like Monterey Pop better. Monterey Pop, it's, this is going to be weird to say because both films are structured and unstructured in the opposite ways. And I think it works better in Monterey Pop than it does in, in, um, in, this company film. company yeah <laughs> original cast album so an original yeah. cast album everything is super loose in terms of the actual structure we're just shown random scenes of things happening but everything that's happening in those is meticulous so they're talking about people having to re-record the same song over and over and over again because maybe there was one bum note so everything happening within these little sort of chunks of narrative are extremely meticulous and down to define what line and everything is sort of really put together in a very structured way, but that's shown quite loosely through the actual film. The opposite is said of Monterey Pop, which is quite structured in terms of it goes band to band. It doesn't really have weird avant-garde moments. It's very structured in how it presents it, but the music is much looser and wilder and more free. So they, they're the opposites. They are, they, are both, they are both structured and unstructured, but in the opposite way. And I think it works better in Monterey Pop by just showing, you know, going from band to band and segment to segment, but the music itself being wilder and freer than, than the opposite in, in original cast album, if that makes sense. It makes sense in my mind. I might not be articulating it well, but that's why I prefer Monterey Pop because I like the music better, but also I like how it's presented. I think it's presented more authentically than cast album, which I think is just a bunch of scenes put together and yeah i think it makes well, a lot of I sense. Think that, well i was gonna say um i think that's kind of where like i would i would kind of zone in and out when i watched it and i think that's the reason is because i never felt like this cause and effect like what he's what adam's kind of describing with monterey pop which i haven't seen but that kind of seems like a little bit more like like a through line almost like the idea that things happen in some type of cause and effect almost even if it's not like it's still unstructured with this i just kind of felt like i could like walk out of the room for 30 minutes and i could come back and i really want to know the difference of what happened and i think that kind of like affects me and maybe that's a really like 
basic or shallow way to watch something, but it just like, it loses me a bit. No, I, I think it's, I mean, obviously whatever Harry feels extremely valid. Um, there, there's, there's one more thing I want to, before I make my kind of main point, there's one more thing I want to say. So a year before this in Italy, NBC paid Fellini, uh, I don't know how much money, but they said, do whatever you want. And they actually called it NBC Experiment in Television. And it wasn't very good. <laughs> I mean, I didn't, I didn't like it. It was Fellini in his most like Fellini in the sense that it was a very, this kind of meta hour of television where he was like driving around the city and going to parties and talking about movie making. And uh, it, it was just, it was kind of a documentary, but you could tell it was fictionalized and it was, it was hard to follow. Um, but I'm curious, I, I don't know the answer to this, but I'm curious if this was made a year later in 1970, at least the pilot was, was shot then, you know, like would, was there something happening in the greater culture where we were at these TV studios were just trying to figure out kind of like what Netflix and Prime are doing now, like how do we keep eyeballs on our channels, right? Like what are the things we need to do like to get, just to kind of mix up like TV a little bit. And so this would have been a glimpse at a time when uh, musical theater, I think was talked about more like in a regular conversation, I don't think most people talk about musical theater much nowadays, right? Unless you happen to be in that world um, or, or like seek it out. But you wouldn't go from a conversation to like the Patriots to then the new production of Avenue Q after or like the new Lin-Manuel Miranda production. Like like those typically you don't talk. It doesn't it's not like in the cultural kind of vocabulary the same way that it would have been still in the 60s. So I think this would have been a relevant thing to see like behind the scenes of a show that everybody kind of was excited about. It was the new thing from Sondheim. They probably marketed West Side Story pretty heavily as like from the maker of, you know, whatever, like come get a glimpse of, of, of how hard these people work to make this thing uh, run for you eight times a week or, you know, whatever. So I'm just, I'm just imagining kind of like what was going on at that time. And I bet you this probably would have captured a lot of eyeballs. Like I bet you people would have sat down and watched an hour of this. Could be talking like just completely out of my ass here, but anytime things like for things for like the seventies, my first thought is just counterculture movie. You know, this is right at the end of that. There's a lot of focus on art. There's a lot of focus on artists themselves, and I could see that kind of playing a part in it. Like I said, I'm guessing, but I could, you know, anything with the seventies, you can almost always say it has something to do with counterculture. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And and there's a lot, you know, the, the lyrics are fairly subversive. I don't know how much y'all paid attention to the lyrics, but they they get really raw. Like this particular musical gets really raw into like the dysfunctional relationships. And um, it's probably a little bit more honest and like raw than, than most, you know, kind of musicals were being at that time about some of the difficulties in a relationship. So that was probably interesting as well. And, and you got to, you got to kind of watch it's almost like, you know, I think there's a little bit of intrigue. Do y'all remember the first time that you sat down and like watched the people recording the voices to The Simpsons and just thought how cool that was, like to kind of see like, you know, Marge and, and like Bart didn't, you know, Bart was a woman and like, I don't know, like all those things. Yeah, I guess the one example I'll, I'll use, like Harry Shearer was probably always one of my favorites to watch because he would do yeah. Mr. Burns and Smithers in a conversation form he could go back and forth and do it and i think it's incredibly fascinating even though that's off topic i just think that no but like here's the thing you love cartoon you love the simpsons right and so like that was interesting adam you could watch four hours of monterey pop because you love the music right 
Like, I think this was probably not made to be generalized. I think this was probably made for people that love musical theater. And like, here's a chance to see behind the scenes of like how amazing these people are. Like sometimes they even hit all the notes, but it was like, could you just do it with a little bit more life? Like, like what kind of a direction is that? But when the, when the take was right, like that was the take, it was kind of like stamped for immortality, right? So they, they had to get it just, just right, even if it meant 18 hours or whatever of recording. But if, and if I think that's a good point. point. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. No, I was just gonna say I, I think it's a good point. Um, and I think if I had like if I was a drama kid, I would love something like this. I know we have somebody in our group who particularly really likes like musical documentaries. This is right up there that sort of alley. If you are into that, um, I'm kind of curious what the one person in our group gave it who was not into music. I didn't look, but I'd be curious. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think that's a great point. I think I would have liked it a lot more if that was the case. If we, if we compare it on the, on the point of musical documentaries, if we compare it to a film that we watched and discussed on this podcast, which actually came out the same year, Gimme Shelter, um, by the, the Maisels, um, like we, can, we can probably safely assume the same people that were going to Rolling Stones concerts and the people who are going to Sondheim musicals, there's probably not a, a lot of overlap right. in those groups, you know, sure. especially maybe nowadays, yes, but in, in 1970, there, there probably wasn't a lot of overlap. So we have two sort of documentarians, the Maisel brothers and then uh, Penna Baker, sort of known for their indirect form of documentary, very sort of avant-garde filmmakers from a documentary point of view, at least. And on the same year, they released these two films that are largely sort of loose or unstructured, but about, about very different sort of musical worlds. You know, so obviously the, the Rolling Stones fans would, would love Give Me a Shelter. So this kind of gives something for the people who are more into musicals, as, as Chris was saying. So it's the same kind of idea, just giving a, a glimpse into the behind the scenes, just in a sort of niche kitschy way. Yeah. I mean, also, America has a weird, you know, like, have you, I don't know, Adam, have you ever seen the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade? I know it exists because of sitcoms, but I don't actually know what it is or, yeah. That's okay, Adam. I've never watched it either. Wow, <laughs> it's so boring. Like, it's just like four, three hours or whatever, I don't know, of like, a, you know, a camera, like, let's say they set up like 20 cameras, I don't know, whatever. And they just cut between different cameras and like, there's like these slow kind of parades moving through the city, right? And like these slow kind of floats moving through the city. But like, I mean, millions of people watch that. But I think there's, I don't know, people watch TV for like so many different reasons. Um, this is probably just trying to capture eyeballs. And I, the only other thing I'll say is that unlike rock or the, the, the stuff that was being shown, R&B, rock, kind of the stuff that maybe uh, Monterey Pop or some of the other music at that time, this isn't like a, there's like a, the perfection to this like it like the, the craft is is different i'm not saying that like obviously Jimi hendrix is like an amazing guitarist right if not the best ever i'm not i'm not saying that you can't compare quality or anything like that but like to get so many people working in unison and to have to get it perfect and the orchestra hitting all their notes and getting their notes perfect like it's like this massive feat Right. And to do it live eight times a week is hard enough. Um, and I think that just this probably just gives an interesting glimpse of to 
what's actually happening uh, in, in a way that, you know, uh, people probably hadn't seen too much before. I, I don't know if there's too much else to say about the movie. I guess I'm kind of saying the same thing in different ways. Um, but it was entertaining for me, somebody who was from that world. Uh, I don't think I could have watched three hours of this, but eh, if it was another half an hour, I could have watched Elaine Stritch try to try to figure it out a little bit longer. She was such an enigmatic character. She was the okay. closest thing to a storyline, I guess, right? Closest to what? That she had the closest thing to a storyline, I guess, right? Yeah, I yeah. would say so. Yeah, yeah. It, there's like a through line to follow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that was a really great sequence. Like I, I kind of drifted in and out a lot of it, going, "Oh, this is cool," and then so on and out, and then, "Oh, yeah, that's cool." But that that kept me that that kept my attention. That whole sort of segment with, with her doing that song about people. What was was it? People who dying or something like that was it people who go to dinner or something along those lines and that, it was yeah, crazy. That kept me I, I yeah. guess for me it kind of begs the question because this is I, i'll use the word experimental here just because it's not like how you would stand like the standard way we're kind of used to with a lot of documentaries it's not it's different than it's a, it's different than give me shelter that you know has a bit of a story to it even if we're doing sort of similar things but I guess for me, um, I, I, I guess I wonder, and this isn't like me having an answer or anything, if it's better to be experimental and kind of go towards a niche, a more a niche audience or to do more, something more standard and maybe attract more people. Um, I don't know if, which is honestly better. I guess for me, I would still prefer the more experimental route, even if I don't quite understand it, but that's just because I think I, it makes it more memorable. Yeah. I mean, this is really straightforward, right? I don't know that there's really much to pick apart here. Uh, we saw it. <laughs> it was <Yeah>. interesting. <laughs> I don't know what else to say, honestly, it's about this. It's definitely a movie. <laughs> it's not a feature-length one, though. It didn't make it to 60 minutes. No. <laughs> yeah. It's a short film. Barely. That's, that's a good point. So I guess, what, what would this be our second um, short that we've done on here, right? Because we did Black Panthers. Yeah, but that Black was only Panthers. like half an hour. Yeah, I don't think we did any other short shorts. And even, I don't know, I feel bad calling this a short film. Yeah, it, it just, uh, I know. I, yeah, I just know with um, the American Film Institute, I know they have a requirement. It's got to be 60 minutes to be considered minutes a feature film. The, yeah. Uh, okay. And what was I don't this, know like if that's 50, 58 but... or something, was it? Yeah, it's like 50. I think my, I think it was 54. I think 54 minutes is where it 54. cut off for me. Damn. If only he had cobbled together a few more scenes of people. Six more minutes. Doing vocal warm ups or, or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> uh, did, you, did any of y'all see the, uh, the spoof, the, the documentary now? Oh, I love documentary now, but I've not seen that. No. Okay. Yeah, I haven't either. I was curious to see it. If you if you're gonna watch documentary now, watch the one called uh, Bad Shit Valley. Okay, that that one's fantastic. It has like uh, Michael Keaton and Owen Wilson and everybody in it, and uh, it's great. It's funny. What are they mocking? Do you know? Um, basically, the Jonestown documentaries. Okay, but it's it, it's very lighthearted. It doesn't take itself very seriously. It's it's worth watching. It's like two parts. Nice, great. Okay, so. Um... 
uh, original cast album in the books. I, I'm very excited to introduce and, and talk to Rob Sweeney this this week. So Rob is uh, probably has one of the, the jobs that would, would be my dream job, which is he's responsible for the, the production of physical media for Kino Lorber for particular. So there's sort of like three Robs within the company. He has a particular set of, of releases that he's in charge of. Uh, really gracious guy as we as we set up the time uh, went over our allotted time and and, and I, I really enjoyed this discussion I think he has a fascinating job uh, and um, I, it blew my mind that each of the three uh, heads of, of production each do 10 to 15 releases a month for Kino I didn't realize it was that the volume was that high that's their schedule of releases is just crazy um, so I was very happy he took time out to talk to us and uh, yeah hope you all enjoy it Rob, thanks so much for joining today. Um, uh, for those who are uh, kind of listening to this, this is Rob Sweeney from Kino Lorber. Um, Rob, would it be okay? I, you know, I know we were exchanging messages and stuff, but would it be okay if you described just very briefly what you do for Kino? Sure. Yeah, um, I'm one of the uh, producers of our uh, physical media DVD and Blu-ray. I handle a lot of the Kino Lorber titles and Kino Classics titles. It's a lot of the theatrical uh, films that come out on home video and some of the, uh, you know, silence and other things come my way as well. Um, and uh, yeah, so that's basically what I spend my days doing is getting all these discs out. Well, I, was, I was excited when you, when you kind of relayed some of that to me over email because my very first Kino purchase Back in 2001, 2002 was Dini yeah, yeah. And it's a big, thick, double-disc DVD. Um, and then there's been at least two, if not three, editions of Metropoli uh, Metropolis over the years. Yes, that's the, the old standard. Yeah, we have a long-running relationship with the FW Murnau Foundation. And so we've been able to license a lot of the restorations they do. Yeah, Metropolis has been... been um, you know, one of our cornerstone films. And then when they discovered that additional footage, uh, that was quite a miracle. Um, yeah. So yeah, we've released it many times in different ways. Well, it seems like a lot of labels have, you know, like Blue Underground has a few titles like Maniac and Maniac Cop, a few titles that they put out in every uh, <laughs> every generation of technology. And uh, Grindhouse Releasing has, you know, so many of those kind of uh, horror films as well. So it feels like there's a few of those titles that have kind of tracked well along with you all over the years. Um, but I know that the rights are kind of interesting because uh, typically the rights for physical media is about seven years, right? Depending on how you buy it. So are there different types of deals or are you all just renewing or, or, or are you not allowed to talk about it, which is fine as well, of course? Um, yeah, well, I would just say that each each deal is different. Each relationship is different with every yeah. licensor. And so, yeah, it kind of comes on a case by case basis, but uh, okay. there's a lot of, you know, long running relationships that, that we have and hope to continue to have. Yeah, that's great. So um, how long have you been in this role right now? Uh, I think it's been, it's been uh, a while. Oh man. I think it's been since like 20, 14 so it's I guess seven years okay great that that's a good lead into my question so that you have a historical kind of uh, perspective here of what it was like before the pandemic and then kind of afterwards you know the the biggest thing we hear I'm, I'm pretty active on reddit um you know in the, in the boutique blu-ray community I don't know if you ever uh, venture on there 
Um, but one of the big things that people talk about is this idea of like production delays really being uh, kind of exacerbated during the, the pandemic. So, you know, I guess to the extent that you can talk about it, like at a high level, has that impacted y'all as well? Or do you have some workarounds? Has that not been as big of a deal for you? Um, I mean, essentially, we've had to keep pushing back our production schedule. So we get things completed further and further in advance. Um, yeah, when I first uh, started, the turnaround was much faster. Um, essentially, it's just changed our schedule. Um, so now I have to build in a few more weeks, sometimes a month, um, so I can get something done, whereas previously things would have turned around within a week, you know? So yeah, it's definitely affected the workflow in that, in that sense since oh. I, start, I started. That's a novel concept. So you you just plan for the delays and <laughs> they don't impact you as much. <laughs> well, yeah, you try. You try. You try to, to do that. It doesn't always work. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, that's the idea anyway. Because, you know, yeah, the turnaround time it does become standardized after a while. And instead of being complaining about it, like this is the new uh, reality sometimes. So you just have to, to roll with the punches as they come. Yeah, for sure. Um, you, you mentioned theatrical releases. So one of the ones that I was excited about in the note you sent me was Bacaro. Yes. Um, that's one that you worked on, right? Is, did I get that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that was a big one. That was a movie that was going to have a very successful theatrical run. Um, and that had only been out for a week or so when the pandemic hit. It was like that weekend. Oh, um, so that really got crushed. Um, and yeah, I worked with in Kleber, the director, Kleber Mendonça Filho. I'm sure I'm pronouncing that wrong. He's very invested in, in home, home video. And so I was dealing with him directly on getting a lot of good stuff together on that one and getting um, the making of, an hour long making of that he directed and getting him to record an audio commentary from his home when he was on lockdown. Um, and uh, yeah, so that was quite a, quite a, a lot of work on that release. It's a it's a fantastic film. Uh, it it kind of is a throwback in a way to I don't know maybe like a, a John Carpenter type of film or one of those where it's a very heavy genre film and and Udo Kier is in it, which is always a nice touch. <laughs> oh yeah, Kleber is a huge John Carpenter fan. I think that he often names him as one of his favorite directors. And he's coming from you know more of an art house background. He was a film critic uh, initially and. Uh, his, his first few films are the, the neighboring sounds and Aquarius are kind of more novelistic and um, engrossing. And this one definitely he pulls more from his interest in genre. Um, yeah, it's a lot of fun. If people haven't seen it, it's like basically it's also kind of has a Western feel. This town is being invaded by uh, Western Westerners who are hunting them for sport. So it has a most dangerous game element too, and they band together and fight them off. Um, and it also, it's very violent, very fun, very uh, kind of a special movie. Yeah, no, I loved it. I, that was, uh, that was, a, was a great um, surprise, I guess, so to speak, to see that's one of the ones you've been working on. Do, do you have a hand in the curation of it as well? Or do you get a list and kind of saying like, these are the ones that are coming out and, you know, help, <laughs> help us get it, get it out? 
Uh, for the most part, it's things that are handed to me based on the schedule, based on the windows. So if a movie comes out in theaters and then needs to be turned around on physical and these increasingly shortening windows, you know, whether it's 45 or 60 days, that's locked in and I have to get it out at that time. Um, there are other things which I help to push through, like um, we recently put out the Ken Jacobs collection, it's an avant-garde filmmaker, you know, and I, uh, you know, help push that deal through and made it happen and got it out. So sometimes I can, I can um, <clears throat> help to curate. And again, as with most things, boring answer case by case basis, but I guess I would say both. Um, that, that just brings up, you know, one of the most common questions people have when it, we, we've been very fortunate to have a few people on, or maybe let's call it restoration specialists or people in the curation side and the marketing side and, and now we're, you know, feel very lucky to speak to you on the production side. One of the most common questions that comes up is, you know, how did, how do you get into this role? Like, so if you were to talk to somebody who's, I don't know, 15, 16 or, or 39, like me, <laughs> whatever, if you're talking to, you know, and, and they have an end, uh, end state goal of kind of being in a role like, like you're in, um, is there a common path? Is there a clean path or is it, uh, yeah. Like, what would you say? What's, what's a way to get into the game? <clears throat> That's, it's a tough question because it's kind of an unusual uh, job that there would there isn't a, not a regular path towards. Um, I I got through it because I started at Kino Barber uh, in a QC position, so okay. I was basically watching every movie multiple times from the masters to the discs over and over again. Um, you know, pointing out the flaws and hoping we ca caught everything before it was released. And then I, from that, I, I was gotten to this position. And that was after being out of school for a couple of years. Um, and just randomly, uh, <clears throat> my friends who I went to school with uh, in cinema studies had that job and he left and I, I slung in there next to him. Um, so I would say it's, uh, I would, if you're interested in cinema, then I would keep following that path wherever it leads you. I wouldn't have uh, this as a goal. <laughs> it's a very, um, you know, limited position. And I don't know, like, how many positions there are going to be moving forward. Um, but a good way to do that is, is to get into to the Q, a QC position or a QC company, because that's very important. I would say, you know, and then graphic design, editing, um, that can get you in the door anywhere. So it's, it's more about getting in the door and then seeing what things open up. And uh, I was just uh, at the right place and never left. And then <laughs> I got started doing this job too. So there's various different ways, I think, to get into it. That's great. Yeah. So, it's, so, I mean, I don't mean to oversimplify what you just said, but sort of start, be willing to put the time in to kind of get, be there for, so that you can be there when the position's open and, and see it first and, and kind of be able to jump in. Um, yeah, yeah, it's the boring answer, but uh, it really is, you know, being at the right place at the right time and showing, you know, that you're interested in it because it is, you know, more and more of a uh, a niche product these days. So if you have a, a passion for it, you might be able to get into it. Well, so that, um, I guess that's a good kind of way to speak now from the role to just kind of Kino Lorber specifically. So I've always viewed Kino Lorber as a boutique house. Uh, and the way that I 
kind of differentiate that in my head at least is, you know, are you producing your own content as far as like a studio would be concerned or are you licensing content from rights holders or studios and then putting out, you know, your own kind of unique releases uh, on top of that, somebody else's content, I guess, so to speak. Um, I, do, do you, how does that match with, with how you see Kino and, and I guess how Kino sees themselves? Is that, is that a fair representation? I would say uh, that's a part of the company is the home video um, is a boutique physical media distributor. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. But I mean, there's also many other arms of the company because, you know, we're distributing new releases theatrically. We have a, you know, big educational department and uh, VOD and the digital is doing amazing things. Um, so I would say, yeah, we have a home video department that I think is accurate to say is, you know, in that boutique space called that collector space, but that it's just one, one part of one part of the company. No, that's a great fair answer. You know, the thing that's always impressed me about y'all is that if you look at some of the ones um, like vinegar syndrome has all these new partner labels that are kind of, you know, they've announced and they, they do maybe, maybe a release a month, right. You know, make sometimes, mm-hmm release every three months depending on if it's just one person manning shop and <laughs> trying to put out what they can um mm. but kino is up in that stratosphere with with some other companies that are able to do it feels like whatever you want like if there's some months where there's you know 10 some months where there's maybe 20 and then there's box sets thrown in there um i feel like your job would get pretty intense at times oh it's it's uh, quite intense yeah i mean we're doing i mean i do like 15 plus releases a month and then Kino Lover Studio Classics, which uh, is led by Frank Tarzi. I mean, they, they do even more. They do like 20, 30 a month. It's quite, it's quite a, a quite a pace. And, um, you know, we're, I think we do a good job to still keep the quality high. And, um, you know, it's just a different, a different way to go about it. And I think the, the benefits of it is that you get more kinds of movies out there. Um, when you have this kind of approach where you're distributing um, quantity in addition to quantity uh, quality. So, you know, things like 13 Washington Square, it's kind of an obscure universal silence, but because we're able to license so many titles, we're uh, able to justify getting it out there. Whereas if we had to do more of a curated um, thing, it probably wouldn't make the list. Um, so yeah, I'm really proud of the, the diversity and variety um, across, you know, the history of cinema from all over the world. Um, it's uh, I think we do a great job of that. No, that's actually like that's a perfect lead-in. So you know, I've just as a personal interest, um, I like to do like a director run. So I'll kind of start for you know like the Kurosawa, the Fellinis, the like Sam Fuller's, like a lot of these folks, uh, Wong Kar Wai, like I'll try to go through and find and buy their whole like filmography, um, mm-hmm. and then just go through them slowly. And I, it, every single director that I've done this with now, I've I've either finished or started doing this with probably like eight different directors, and there's at least one, if not several, Kino Lorber <laughs> titles in. Um, mm-hmm. You know, so it's if it's, you know, sometimes it's a little bit more of an obscure film from a well-known director. Sometimes it's whole big box sets, you know. Uh, um, and so it's that it's it just no matter what, it feels like y'all are sort of 
very you know, omnipresent almost in, in the space of world and in classic cinema. So I, I, that's, I, I agree to your point, I guess, from a collector standpoint, uh, I, I fully agree with what you say. I just think, yeah, we um, provide uh, a different kind of thing. Some more rare stuff, some unusual stuff. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I love all the other labels and the care and attention to detail and the big booklets and, <laughs> and all that. Uh-huh. Um, so, but yeah, I think we, we are also sort of an essential service of getting stuff out there well the big name of the game is restoration right and so you're, the, all these these movies that are now being essentially preserved uh beyond just a film copy is, is extremely important too for from a historical standpoint i mean i would say that's i mean that's more up to the, the archives and the museums um because th- you know things are changing so fast that I would much feel much safer if you know a film negative housed in MoMA than a DVD or Blu-ray. Um, for personally, I love having the DVDs and Blu-rays for me. But in terms of like the the scope of film history, uh, that's yeah, that's the work of the archives and the museums and all that, because um, uh, they have they they have the facilities to keep these uh, original elements. Um, pristine for you know until we're dead yeah well I guess you know there's to that point there's it's kind of a symbiotic relationship I think between the the people that want to preserve the films and then any kind of commercial market for them right which is where y'all fit in I think really well yes yeah yeah exactly like we're trying we're trying to get these out there to keep uh, this kind of history alive and um and we're, we're grateful to all of the, um, you know, the archives in MoMA and Anthology and, um, and also the studios some, who often let, and Frank Tarzi does a lot of, um, Kino's Lover Studio Classics does a lot of new scans of titles to get titles back out into circulation. So we, we do a lot of our own um, original scans and restorations as well. Um, in addition to just licensing ones that were done uh, yeah. outside. Yeah, yeah. So it's a lot, it's a cornucopia. Of, uh, it's, of it's fun. It's, and, and it's a fun sort of, if you think about like, like I was mentioning earlier, we've been speaking with people that are more focused on like the test technical restoration side and the marketing side, you on the production side, like it's, a, you, you kind of need so many different pieces, right. To, to keep this machine running. So Oh yeah. yeah, it's it's and it's the hundreds of people <laughs> that and like whose hands it goes through before you can put the the disc in your hand. Um, so if you, I think you know, it's funny. This answer has been pretty much the same whenever I ask it. But if you weren't doing this, what would you do? Lord knows. I mean, I was trying to be a, a, a film critic, film writer, and I still am. Uh, but maybe I would devote more time to doing that, even though, to be honest, it would be impossible to make a living at that right now. But if that was my goal. I was like, uh, went to grad school for cinema studies, you know, interned at the Village Voice, um, 
and I'd still still write as much as I can. So if I didn't do this job, uh, I probably would have been on that kind of path where that would have led me. I don't know. I would have had to get a day job at some point yeah. uh, because the nature of the business is so dire. Mm. Um, but yeah, I couldn't say. But maybe uh, as a writer, maybe I would have gotten into programming. Um, maybe I would have gone back to school, been a teacher, like, I mean, any one of those things could have happened. Well, there's, yeah, it's, there's a, especially with the background of cinema studies, that could be interesting. And it's, that's the one thing that I, I, I love movies. Uh, and I've, I've watched so many, very many, uh, typically around 300 a year, some, somewhere in that range. But um, I don't, uh, I don't have a classical background. So sometimes I feel like I'm missing out on, on some of the uh, stuff I should catch, <laughs> especially when watching some of the silent stuff that, that, you know, where a lot of the techniques that were developed and stuff, I, it's just more about kind of watching it, but for me anyways, but um, so, you know, this, one of the questions we ask, and it might be different asking companies as large and established as Kino, but, you know, what, what does it look like in the future? Like, are you seeing any trends? Uh, you mentioned that digital is really kind of doing great for y'all. Education is, I'm sure, will always be strong, especially with the relationships that y'all have there. Um do you see any changes coming to the, the physical media space, uh, home video space, I guess? I, you know, the, the, one of the reasons I ask uh, is that it feels like, because I've been collecting for so, so long now, like I felt like there was a dip kind of, let's call it 2011, 12, 13, in that, in that range. And I don't know when exactly it started getting good again, but I feel like for sure in the last two to three years, uh, there's just, it feels like there's more releases, there's more special editions, there's more like y'all put out that crazy, that great set about uh, Yiddish cinema recently. Like, I feel like there's mm -hmm. some titles coming out that maybe wouldn't have seen the light of day in the last 10, 15 years that all of a sudden there's bandwidth for. So are you seeing that resurgence or is that more just uh, me seeing what I want to see? Um, I don't know if it was a, re a resurgence, but yeah, I mean, there's been a, a steady growth and I think a lot of the credit, you know, should go to Frank Tarzi because um, he's, he's developed... Um, you know, strong relationships with the studios to license a lot of stuff for the Kino Lorber Studio Classics line, which has been a huge success for us. Um, and you mentioned the Yiddish cinema line that was spearheaded by um, by Brett Wood, who is um, also does a lot of, you know, production uh, type stuff as well. And he's a, a great producer and he's been at Kino for a long time. Um, but yeah, sorry, I got off track. I just want to make sure everybody gets their, uh, get their credit. Because uh, yeah, and Brett is also spearheading. Um, we just launched uh, an advertiser-supported um, streaming channel called yeah. uh, Kino, Kino Cult. Yeah. And that was spearheaded by Brett Wood as well. So a lot of like great cult movies for free, you can watch uh, streaming, you know, with commercial breaks, but the price is right. Um, so that's another thing he's working on. Um, yeah, and we're always talking about, you know, different different kinds of movies to release, always discussing with places to license new stuff. And it seems like the um, the the number of titles is not dissipating. The interest is still high. Um, the customers are still really excited for the stuff we're putting out. I'm glad to hear that the number of titles is not dissipating. As you said, that's good. Um, we certainly, it, it feels to me like, you know, I, I was joking with somebody the other day that a lot of those old Anchor Bay, uh, like limited editions from back in the, you know, 2003, 4, 
for like 50,000 titles, 90,000 titles, you know, when they put out yeah. like Evil Dead. I don't know if we're going to see that again, but. Um, no, we won't. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it does seem like, you know, like I, uh, one of the uh, labels that I collect is Vinegar Syndrome and they have a line called the Archive Line, which is just kind of highly curated titles and they only have 16 of them right now. And even over the course of these 16 titles, it went from a thousand or 1200 was the first limited, like numbered limited edition. Mm-hmm. And the one that just came out was 5,000. Um, and it, I was asking somebody from Vinegar about that. And they were like, well, they keep selling out really fast. So we kind of increased that number a little bit and just kind of test it, you know. Um, but anyways, it feels like there's still a market for some of these limited releases and sales like right now, you know, sales and a lot of that. So that's good. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Vinegar Syndrome does great work and I'm, I'm glad they're doing well. The more the merrier. Look, we, we want to bring people on from... Uh, places where we buy, right? I bought a lot of Kino Lorber. I'm, I'm current on y'all's film noir sets. I hope you have a bunch more. Um, I'm current on your Western classic sets. Um, uh, there's a, a fantastic Buster Keaton short set that uh, that really like meticulously put together. Very, very beautiful set. Um, so I, I'm, I'm a huge fan of the company and I wanted just a chance to meet and, and talk to somebody from, who's been integral in in, in kind of making and, and producing these discs. Um, one, I guess, you know, kind of question uh, is, is what, am I, what am I not asking or, or what do people not know about your job that you think would be interesting if, if they knew, um, whether it's challenges or stuff that maybe we just don't think about when we go buy it off the shelf or, you know, online somewhere? Mm-hmm. I don't think, <laughs> I don't know if there's anything that is actually interesting. It's a lot yeah. of... Uh, it's a lot of emails and, and waiting and uh, uh, hoping things get done in time. It's a lot of hoping and praying, I would say. I mean, the, the nice job. <laughs> yeah, I mean, sometimes there's there's fun things like uh, we were able to connect uh, Birch and Tavernier with Walter Hill before Tavernier passed. Um, um, he, Walter Hill did an intro for the Clockmaker of St. Paul um on that blu-ray we released and they had you know known each other previously uh, but they reconnected um for that bonus feature and um and heather buckley helped me helped me get them together and then soon after that tavernier passed away um and so that was kind of one of the things i was not happy but i was glad that they were able to reconnect uh, uh before before he passed on um yeah you know so just the i guess i would say the people you meet sometimes perhaps not during the pandemic when you couldn't meet anybody but right. i would say the people you're able to meet uh, are, are can be a particular highlight bertrand tyranny was extremely sweet uh clever was extremely open and, and nice um and uh, that was one thing about the pandemic was it's so you're so disconnected from uh, from the people that that was kind of a bummer. And if you're interested in like the nitty gritty of the stuff, I wrote an article for Filmmaker Magazine about producing DVDs and Blu-rays during the pandemic. Um, so I wrote that as RM at Sweeney at Filmmaker Magazine. If you're curious of what uh, my boring day to day is like. Might be um, only boring because it is your day to day. I think for a lot of people, it's super interesting. So if you could send me that or I'll try to find it and definitely link it and, and I'll read it. Yeah. I mean, I sure. Yeah. I'll email it to you. Um, 
I guess I guess one of the more fun things is is, is generating ideas for uh, bonus features and trying to match uh, people to films to do audio commentaries um, and then seeing what they come up with. Um, is is that like a series of discussions? Like that's actually a super interesting topic because sometimes there's a direct connection, right? Like the cinematographer, director, you know, sure, exact, whatever. But sometimes it's like a critic. And I don't, you know, it doesn't seem like there's an obvious connection other than they happen to know a lot about maybe Japanese cinema or, you know, whatever, or German cinema, German expressionism, whatever, right? But are, is there like, what is that process like when you're selecting somebody for that? Yeah, it's like a balance between the person who has the most expertise versus the person who actually knows how to record an audio commentary and will deliver it. On a, at a day, time and date that you can get it on the disc. Because sometimes those two things don't go hand in hand. Uh, okay. Sometimes people who are the most, had the most knowledge about things are the most timely or, uh, <laughs> or technologically savvy. So, mm -hmm. you know, you, uh, so that's part of it. Um, and then you, and once you work with somebody who delivers something that's of a high quality on time, you're like, well, I'm gonna wanna work with them. Uh, more and more so that, you know that happens too but usually i'm looking for um you know the person who wrote the book on the subject and then try and see if they can uh, do it uh, but if they can't then you move on and you know you go down a list and okay see what happens so yeah and, and each project is has its individual challenges and everything. without naming names have you ever had got one back and you're like I can't use that it's really boring or, or just really bad or something um no I mean we've, we've we've used what we've gotten for the most part like I've never entirely rejected uh, I remember one time I didn't work on this one but like Kelly Reichert for Old Joy mm -hmm. she her audio commentary she like stopped after like 45 minutes and just uh, she said that she said all she had to say and so that was all we included. Okay. Um, you know, <laughs> you take what you can get sometimes. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there's always challenges editing those things sometimes. And uh, uh, you don't want people like bad mouthing uh, other, other people on these tracks um, mm. uh, or anything like that. But no, I haven't had any, any uh, I've never had to totally trash anything. That's good. I, Yes, yeah, I remember uh, the old uh, the old South Park DVDs that came out when they were in they're still running like in the early 2000s. They had this little thing called mini commentaries, and I guess they just basically have those guys have short attention spans, and so they would just say like three four minutes into the episode, they're like, "I think that's all the stories we have for this one." I mean, are, anything else, Matt? They're like, "Nope." And, and so like sometimes that method works too. They were still interesting even when they were short. You know, if the stories are good, that's all that counts, I guess, right? Yeah, I, I miss the days when uh, uh, you could get, you know, some of the big names to do commentaries and they were totally insane. Uh, you know, the Val Kilmer commentary for Spartan is incredible. All of the Adam McKay um, commentaries on his films are amazing. And uh, Anchorman, they have Lou Rawls show up for some reason. And uh, okay. I remember on Step Brothers, Baron Davis shows up. Um, <laughs> Uh, so yeah, I had, but those days are long gone. Now I now we have uh, you know academics and stuff, and that's yeah. okay because they know a lot. The funny, the most stressful one I have to say is we released this uh, 
Grace Jones uh, documentary and uh, coordinated her recording at a studio in London, you know, remotely. And, you know, she has all these requirements and uh, the dates keep changing. And uh, it's all, there's only so much I can do from uh, my office in New York. And like, uh-huh. uh, but she got there and she recorded it and she's like, it, you know, and they're drinking like champagne in the studio and stuff. And it's a, it's a lot of fun to listen to. Uh, that one I was probably one of the better ones that we put out. It was super fun. But it was super stressful just trying to, coordinate getting a big star like that into uh, into the recording studio it's not and you had like a writer that went with it <laughs> uh yeah this famous writer not thankfully we didn't have to get her oysters and was i remember the writer that went viral on twitter said like you don't have to shuck them because grace shucks her own oysters so <laughs> that that wasn't uh, included on, on this one thankfully it's i don't really think we would have the budget for it <laughs> that's really funny well, I think that's all the questions I have. I mean, I look, I, it's super interesting to hear your perspective. Um, uh, yeah, I'm sure there's going to be a million other questions once we post this that people have that I forgot to ask. So if you're open to it, I might send you those over email and <laughs> give, give a response. Sure, no problem. Cool. Well, yeah, thank you so much. Um, I, you know, one, one final thing we always ask is, you know, maybe, I don't know whether it's once a year or whatever, like as some more titles come out that you're kind of responsible for if you're reopened to coming back and, and uh, just seeing how you've been doing and, and some of how the new releases have been performing. Sure. Great. Wonderful. Well, yeah, until, until we speak again, thanks again for joining. All right. Thanks for having me. All right. And welcome back. Now we're going to be talking about uh, Duloc 10C, also known as the English title Fallen Angels, which was directed by Wong Kar Why? I knew I was, I knew I knew how to say it and I was still going to mess it up. Um, this one's about um, this Hong Kong set crime drama follows the lives of a hitman hoping to get out of the business and his elusive female partner. Eh, good enough, I guess, for IMDb title. Um, I know Adam has seen this. This is his second time through. Um, Chris, was this your first or have you seen it as well? I, uh, I, this is one of the ones I'd seen about 20 years ago. I don't have a strong memory of it. Uh, it, I did, it did bring up some, some memories for me, but honestly, I, I didn't remember a lot of this. Um, just real quick before we jump in. So the issue pictures has it at 1423. Um, so it's a, it's a beloved movie coming just a few years after, uh, maybe, I, mean, I guess, arguably his most beloved movie, but I know that that's the people that would argue for in the mood for love. But just a few years after Chunking Express, which is uh, 194 on the issue pictures, so a bit of a drop if you think of it that too way. Low. But it's still a beloved movie. Well, 193 is too low. 193 is too low for Chunking Express. Although In the Mood for Love, I think is way higher. I think In the Mood for Love is probably in the top 50. Yeah, um, I know that In the it's, Mood for Love has a lot of sort of international. It's a pretty, yeah, it's a pretty 50-50 split between fans, I think, between Chunking and Individual Love. They're both amazing pictures. Um, yeah, 42. 42, yeah, I knew, it was, I knew it was high. But it doesn't have the mamas and the papas, I'm assuming. I haven't seen it, so I mean... It doesn't. You're correct in your assumptions, Zach. It does not have California uh, California Dreaming 75 times throughout its run time. So, 
You are correct. And, and it also does not feature a Cantonese cover of Dreams by Cranberries like Chunking Express does. Mm, that's just disappointing. We, yeah. Honestly, um, they should just switch places just for those facts alone. <laughs> Uh, so Fallen Angels, I'll, I'll sort of dip in first if you don't mind it on this one. So uh, Wong Kar Wai is one of my favorite filmmakers. Um, I love stuff. I always try and watch his films a couple of times. Uh, I've seen Chungking Express three times, In the Mood for Love twice. So this is, I was looking forward to sort of seeing this a second time. Um, I watched this one originally sort of relatively close after I first watched Chungking Express because um, if you're not familiar, if you're a listener and you're, and you're not too familiar, uh, Fallen Angels was, the, the plot of Fallen Angels was originally supposed to be part of Chunking Express. So it was supposed to be the third story in Chunking Express. And then Wong Kar Wai decided that it worked better with just the two stories and then sort of went about sort of expanding this into its own feature. And um, so, you know, I kind of watched this one straight after Chunking Express, expecting something very similar. And in a way it is extremely similar in terms of the visuals and it's very visceral um but this is much sort of moodier it's darker it's more um it's a bit more avant-garde in terms of how the story is actually told it's not a simple split of part one part two like in, in chunking express and I, I honestly didn't really like it the first time i watched it i think i gave it maybe like a three star on on letterboxd that i wasn't wasn't really well yeah i wasn't wasn't too too fussed about it um I thought it was very, um, it, it sort of pushed me away a lot. Um, I, I didn't find it very appetizing. So, I, I, but I knew maybe that there was something more that I was missing out on because I know a lot of people had recommended this one. And, you know, one of the people in our film club even said it was his favorite one, Car Y. So I, I wanted to give it another try at some point. So I was glad it won the poll. And uh, yeah, I just had a complete, complete 180 in terms of how I feel about this film. I absolutely loved it this time around. Um, I watched the newer cut. I know some people watch the older cut. Some people watch the newer cut because both of them are on the channel. I watched the newer one just for the sake of it. Um, I didn't notice anything particularly crazy other than a couple of scenes that were in black and white in this version that aren't in black and white in the original, but it really wasn't a big deal. Um, but yeah, I love this film. It, it really it really drew me in. Once my expectations were set to not expect just Chunking Express 2, <laughs> it just allowed me to to really appreciate this film for for what it is which is just it's just a, a great view of just broken lonely people um and just them just just trying to get through life and there and obviously there is the little one car white quirks of hitmen and neon signs and blonde women and you know just your typical one car white stuff but uh yeah it was it was a really a really emotional film as well uh, would you say, just uh, curious, I know you said the first time you watched it, you felt like it kind of pushed you away and you yeah. caught up kind of like the loneliness factor that I, I noticed too when I watched it. Do you think that's kind of by design to have it push you away a bit and not have like this almost intimacy within, with really anything? Yeah, for sure. Like, because obviously with Chunking Express, it's all about finding connection and then, you know, finding love and everything like that. Whereas with Fallen Angels, it's, it's not really about that. Nobody really ends up happy um which is maybe a bit more realistic but um yeah I, I, it's it's that and then it's also you know everything's sort of shot at night in grimy sort of buildings and cramped hotel rooms and it's it's not it's just not as a you know visually or aesthetically appealing as chungking express is which is absolutely by design you know we're not supposed to be looking at these people living lavish lives or anything like that so 
And yeah, I think I, I just went in expecting another sort of rosy Chunking Express kind of film when really it's it's not. This one, um, I'll jump in this real quick. And then Chris, I'd like to hear your thoughts since it's been so long in between viewings for you. But watching this, it, I feel like I finally understood because I've always heard this was one of Tarantino's like biggest inspiration as directors go. And this one, I can see it a lot more than with Chunking, honestly. Like I was like, yeah, I can see where Tarantino picked up a lot of his stuff from. I actually, I didn't know that detail. That's interesting. So uh, he lists Wong Kar Wai as a big influencer on him? Yeah, I think he had a, he was a big part in getting some restorations done like years ago. If, for my, if I'm doing this by memory, I could be a little off, but he, I think this might have been one he specifically wanted restored because he saw it at a festival and it didn't have like a, it wasn't in the U.S. very easily. And I think he mm -hmm. helped to bring it to the U.S. Uh, you're saying Tarantino helped bring Fallen Angels here? I think it was Fallen Angels. It was one of his films oh, that cool. he that he puts as a big influence because um, he saw it at a film festival and he really liked it. That's interesting because Wong Kar Wai's, uh, well, or, or maybe Christopher Doyle's camera work is so different from a Tarantino picture. Um, uh, the, Tarantino doesn't really use color the same way as like a character. I, th I think it's... Yeah, I, I wouldn't say they shoot similarly, but, you know, I, I guess I look more as, like, the subject matter and, like, the way comedy's used. I think comedy is kind of where I see the similarities more than the way they're shot. Yeah, and even the characterizations as well, like the Hitman character from, from this film could absolutely be a Tarantino character. Oh, interesting. Okay. Like like from Pulp Fiction or something or Reservoir yeah, Dogs. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Reservoir Dogs. Exactly. He could be one of those kind of gangstery hitmen. Because even yeah, well, I was gonna say he even talks about like his process, like how he paid this woman to pretend to be his wife, how he bought this kid like a cone to like pretend to be his kid in a picture, and it's like yeah, that seems like you know how they how they explain their process in a Tarantino movie. So that, if if it's okay if I jump, that's the perfect segue into kind of like what the lasting effect this movie's had on me. Cause I, I think that my, my takeaway from this was that when Wong Kar Wai is at his best, especially, with, or at least with Chum King and Fallen Angels, it's when he puts these funny details in that you wouldn't expect in the movie. Uh, but it really adds like depth and layers to these characters that I think is, is so hard to do because he, he does it so efficiently. Like, the, the story that I liked better was the one about the, the gentleman who, who can't speak. Uh, his character's name was, do y'all remember off the top of your head? Uh, Ho, Ho, Chimo, right? Ho. It's the same, like, it's the same name as someone in Chunking too, right? Like, I'm not, am I misremembering it's, that? It's the same actor as the first cop. Uh, his okay. name is like Ho Kiwi, something like that. Same actor as the first cop in Chunking Express. Okay. The one who likes pineapples. Uh, his character, I think, his character is brilliant, and I think his character is uh, exceptionally well uh, uh, crafted. Like, like he's so funny, and there's that there's that one scene that that jumps that that really like I don't think I'll ever forget where he's driving with this guy's family in the ice cream shop after he's essentially forced them all to eat like all this stolen ice cream and pay him for it, and he's like fully a criminal. But the scene is shot without any sense of 
or, or shot very straight and very kind of like uh, joyful, this joyful moment. Uh, sorry. Uh, I'll hop in while Chris is getting raided for unknown crimes. <laughs> FBI, yeah. open up. Yeah, no, but that that character, I love that character a lot. I I hated, I absolutely despised this character when I first watched the film, and I loved him this time around because I saw I saw through his vulnerability. He is stunted emotionally. He is violent, but he is absolutely tragic. And I I'm very much more enjoyed his uh, his story this time around compared to the first time because I I fucking hated him the first time around. <laughs> Not gonna lie, he annoyed the crap out of me. Be- because of how aggressive he was towards yeah. everybody? he's just a fucking asshole. <laughs> he just annoyed the crap out of me because he's such a dickhead. And then he has these sweet kind of tender moments with his dad where he's the same person, but like, but but you can tell he really loves his dad, right? Absolutely. Yeah, and that's, that's what I got this time around. I didn't really catch those nuances the first time. It's almost like, yeah, like I think in that sense, Tarantino, uh, Wes Anderson came to mind, again, not the way it was shot, but, but in, in, you know, Fellini does this a lot where you have this character that's doing something mischievous or, or, or bad, but the way that the film is shot is more lighthearted and kind of playful. And it, you have, you're forced to kind of sit with that in the audience. And I, I love that. And I, I could have easily watched a, a two hour movie of, of that character and, and that uh, his relationship to his dad and his weird illegal business that he just basically like forces people to pay him for stuff. He like grabs him off the street and forces to pay him for stuff. Uh, it was, I, don't know, I loved it. Uh, I'm curious. Oh. I know Adam's answer of between the two, between this and Chung King, which went for us. Chris, which do you prefer between Chung King and Fallen Angels? My favorite story out of the four is the one with Ho Chi Minh right here, with with the one with the, the man with no uh, that can't speak. Uh, overall, I like Chung King better because I just I so I I struggled to connect with the assassin in this story. I I didn't the the assassin character I thought was written well. I didn't like the way the female character was written. His manager or his partner, I think she's called. Um, yeah, I do think that half is the more underdeveloped of the two. I can't. I I couldn't find an answer for this because, you know, obviously, like I said, like I said at the start, Fallen Angels stemmed from being a, a sort of scrapped or developed, sort of more developed version of a third act in Chunking Express. But if we're going by Chunking Express, then it has two parts with two different characters, two different stories. So, an assumption can be made that the third part was going to be just one other story. So I'm trying to figure yeah. out which one was the one with Fallen Angel. Was it the mute one? Which wouldn't really make sense because it's the same actor that played the first cop. Or is it the assassin? So I'm just wondering was like which, because if it was the one with the assassin that was sort of new and added to this, I can kind of get why it was maybe a bit underdeveloped. But if that was the one he wanted to use and then he added in the mute character, then we're very lucky because it was a very happy accident that, that happened because the assassin story, it's cool and it's it's, you know, it kind of reminds me of the pineapple story. I, I, when I when I talk about Chunking Express, I have the pineapple story and California Dreaming story. So in pineapple mm-hmm. story, I do kind of feel like that one's a bit underdeveloped compared to California Dreaming story. And kind of in the same way, because they both have these sort of weird sort of crime gangster undertones, obviously with the, mm-hmm. the, the woman with the blonde wig and Chunking Express. And then another character of Blondie, which may even be the same person in Fallen Angels, who knows? But um, yeah, in 
in um in Fallen Angels, that sort of that that assassiny story, which is cool. It looks it looks cool and everything like that, but it is a little bit underdeveloped and it's probably the least strongest of the four across the two films. Um, the just just so you know, uh, somebody posted on if you go to our Criterion conversation and want to join in our weekly film club discussions. Uh, within the last hour or two, somebody posted an article that gives the answer to that. Do you want me to spoil it, or should people go there and look? And, I'm uh, and I'm I'm interested in people going there to look, and I'm going to go look myself now. Um, rather, <laughs> Because I, 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 I was genuinely curious because, like I was saying, well, see, I don't know, I can't, I can't really say until I look at it now. But, um, yeah, I felt the assassin story was underdeveloped. At the same time, I thought that Chunking Express as well, but I still love that film. So, uh, yeah. Where are we? What about you, Zach? While Adam's reading that, <laughs> what, what, which one did you like better? Um, are we talking about between all four or just the in this one? Uh, I think. The I, we kind of both answered the question in our own way. I think your initial oh. question was which movie did we like better, but I guess whatever you want. Uh, which I like better. Um, I, I've kind of been trying to figure that out because I've only watched both once. I haven't revisited Chung King. I've been wanting to, but I haven't. They just feel kind of like completely different moods, almost like just yeah. like if I was if I, I don't know. I almost feel like if I was in a I'm not necessarily a bad mood, but kind of in a gloomier mood i would like fallen angels better better if or if i wanted something like more upbeat or happier i would like chunk king better because they have a lot of similarities i guess in the way they're shot like i i but i you know i think it's fascinating i can't think of any example it's been oh god whatever a year since we've done chunk king so i'm trying mm. to remember a decent amount of it but like the chaotic feel almost feels like even though he's using like a lot of the same tactics and things like that it feels different and i and i can't really explain why i just think they feel so different even though he's doing very similar things well no i i, I mean i think that was at least my my interpretation is that was definitely intentional i think fallen angels has a much more cynical kind of tone to the stories it's it's essentially fallen angels is the night to chungking express's day you know both obviously in terms of how they're presented you know fallen angels is pretty much all at night and Chunking Express is all mainly shot during the day or when it is at nighttime, it's all very in the very lit up areas of Hong Kong, like in near advertisement boards or in sort of bars and stuff like that. Um, so I do definitely feel that there's an inversion or it's a sort of night and day. It's the same city um, and sort of same sort of lonely sort of souls of sort of wander through looking for connection. But you know, one is sort of more cynical, more grimy, more dark, maybe more realistic. And then the other is maybe a bit more optimistic, a bit more maybe upbeat about, you know, the possibilities. Because um, like, even though, you know, the characters in Chunking Express, they don't always get the sort of typical Disney happy ending. They do find some kind of emotional solace or they do get some kind of closure in their stories. Is I, since I'm not as familiar with him, is Fallen Angel seems to be kind of one that kind of developed a cult status from what I've kind of gathered from listening to people talk about it. Is is a lot of it to do with like people kind of seeing it as a Chung King too, even if it wasn't intentional because they feel so connected? I honestly don't know. It, it's it's one of those ones where it is. It's definitely lo- it's kind of like low key, really loved. Like 
like I would almost say this probably is like its third most popular film, you know, behind Chungking and In the Mood for Love. And I know some people might disagree with, with some other ones, but it it's sort of it is a low-key, really beloved film by him. Yeah. And I, I I don't really like I de- I didn't get it first time I watched it. I get it now because I now love it, but I I couldn't really put a pin as to say why it resonates with so many people. Maybe it is the sort of, you know, this idea of you know, loneliness, uh, you know, want for human connection. It's such a universal theme. Um, so maybe maybe that's it. But I honestly, I couldn't put a, a pin to say exactly why it is such a sort of cult beloved film. What, just to, that, that's the thing that frustrated me the most about the woman character in the assassin story, the female character in the assassin story, Charlie, right? I, I couldn't tell you her name. I know the one you're talking about, though. The one who likes to or get anyways, off on or, beds. Boy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, like, actually, that's exactly what I want to talk about. So if you think about that, a character who would be so obsessed with somebody that she would steal, essentially, his possessions, right, and, like, sort of, like, lay on his bed when he wasn't there. She knew he wasn't there because she was giving him the assignments. And so she would go and live out these fantasies, go sit on his stool in the bar, like, I feel like that character could have been given so much depth. It could have been written. So, that's such an interesting character. And I think we've prob- there's probably a universal theme there, even if it wouldn't look exactly like that for everybody. But of obsessing over everybody who's like, doesn't know you or, or is not interested in you or, or you won't have a chance to meet for whatever reason. I think that's an interesting thing to, to explore. And, and I, I wanted more out of that. Yeah, like yeah. she's definitely she's probably the most underdeveloped of everything, really. Like she should have been the main character of that story rather than the right. man. You know, because we've all been at some point in our lives, we've all wanted someone we couldn't have. It's just yeah. that's just life. We all go through it and we've all been there at least once. She should have been the main character of that story, um, rather than the hitman. His hitman's cool, but you know, there's only so much of him going into places and shooting people up and having little wisecracks that before just becomes the same thing kind of over and over again. Like he's a cool character. Um, and I, I did, I did like his scenes, but um, she was, she was especially, un- especially for what comes later in the film, which I won't delve into. She was very underdeveloped. Yeah. Um, I find it fascinating. One... Oh, no, Zach, go ahead. I was just going to say one thing. Um, well, I, I agree. They definitely didn't develop her as much as I would have liked either. One thing I did find interesting, and it's kind of the part that stuck with me, and it's going to sound bad, but it's a, it's the it's for different reasons that it thinks. Um, the part where she's on the bed, um, that scene, I think that's one of the ones that's actually shot in black and white. I can't remember off the top of my head, but I, it's interesting how he shot that so unflattering because that's one of those scenes where you can kind of shoot that in a couple different ways if you want it to be very sexual in its own way, and then it's very unflattering. It's very wide angle. It's very from a bad angle. I'm not gonna say a bad angle, but not one you would typically see. And yeah, I almost no, feel like I that's kind you. of what he yeah. used yeah. it for. Yeah, it's like that, almost like that. I don't want to use the word pathetic, but that's kind of what kind of comes in. It just kind of makes it feel that way, like in a way that you feel bad for. Her. Um, but I don't know. I just like I think that was kind of how he was using her, just almost like in a way to explore the theme of loneliness more than develop her as a character necessarily. Yeah, it's a good point because it's definitely it's an unflattering angle, um, and you know it's it sort of maybe makes it maybe look a bit like primal, in a way rather than something sensual. 
Yeah, and especially if we're talking about like human connections, kind of the theme between if we're going to compare Chunking and this, that's kind of what you were talking about, Adam. That's his, it rings true. His entire filmography really is is this human connection aspect. Anything shot in Hong Kong, at least, I can't say much about his Wuxia films. I don't know if Ip Man has a lot of trouble with human connection, but uh, from the Grandmaster. But uh, yeah, his Hong Kong films are it's, it's like a it's like a, a pretty sort of standard theme for Wong Kar Wai. Well, it's, well, it's interesting. interesting. No, I was just going to say, uh, it's interesting you bring up kind of like the primal thing, because one thing I think that kind of rings true for both, and we're talking about like human connection is like sexuality is kind of like the, if you're going to use a basic um, idea of human connection, that's about the most primal one you can come up with. It's one of the mm-hmm. mo- most basic, easiest to identify with. And it's interesting how he kind of uses it in very different ways, like both to have connection, but at the same time have like the loneliness we were talking about in here um, as kind of a sort of through line, I guess. Um, Just to back up your point there, she is, she gets that, uh, is it a note that's delivered to her at the bar or she finds out that that basically the guy's like, leave me alone, right? Like, I don't want to, I don't want this to happen. And she goes back to his place and masturbates on his bed again, except this time she's like crying doing it. Right. And it was a nice touch because there's a lot of emotion in that scene. Uh, this is like her way of kind of saying goodbye, but, or, you know, or it's, it's a, anyways, there's a, there's a different emotion there than the first time. So I think there's stuff like that, that, that backs up your point pretty well. Like, I don't think he was doing it for the sake of it. You know, there's nothing sensual or or attractive or anything about those scenes. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not like he was doing it in a sex sells kind of way. And mm-hmm. um, like, I think he did it as a point, you know, to show this sort of loneliness. David Lynch does a very similar thing in Mulholland Drive um, with the with one of the scenes with Naomi Watts. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't I don't think he was he was doing this to exploit, you know, the actress or a sex sells kind of a thing. I. I do. I I feel like he had a point in doing it, but I still think she. I, I still wish she was more better developed as a character. I agree. Mm-hmm. I think your idea to have her as like the focal would have actually been better because I agree with you. Like, Hitman's cool. It's very comic booky. Like, it's almost like he wanted to explore like how to put comic books to a page. But yeah, I think that I think that would have been better. Yeah, would have. I think it would have maybe made that story a bit more emotionally grounding because there's not really a whole lot to sort of ground that film. It's, you know, random scenes of her, most of the time she's masturbating and crying. And then there's other scenes of him shooting up people or deciding whether or not he wants to sort of be with that blonde woman. So there's not a lot to sort of ground that film. I think if they had developed her better, it would have given that that segment much more gravitas. Like when you compare it to the, the, the segments of Ho Chi Minh, um, they, they have such, they're just much more gravitas, there's much more to go on, much more to develop. It's um, largely for, maybe maybe not for the casual viewer, maybe the casual viewer prefers the scenes of, of you know, the guy shooting up people in, in barber shops and things like that, because it's cooler. It's Tarantino, as we said before, but maybe someone who's looking more for plot and things like that, they're going to much prefer the, the, the mute character and his story compared to this one, which is, seems kind of, without the, that sort of gravitas, you know, it, it, it's just kind of all sizzle, no steak. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I want to look up something here. I want to change topics slightly. Is there anything else? I want to talk about Wong's uh, career really fast, but is there anything else uh, on that before we switch gears slightly? No, I don't think I'm good. Mm-hmm. No. Okay. So there is, uh, he does this interesting thing early in his career. So uh, we talked about Ch- Chunking Express being 194, I think, 193, 194, and this would being in the 1400s. Then uh, he makes, uh, in the medium, he, he makes a movie called Happy Together, which I haven't actually seen. Yeah, and I then, was, that's the one I voted for, actually, funnily enough. That was the one I actually voted for, because I, I want to see it. It's meant to be very good. Okay, yeah, that's good. And then a couple of years go by, and then he makes In the Mood for Love, which was the one that was 42. And then he makes a couple of short films, and then in, that's in 2000. And then in 2004, so four years later, he makes 2046. And that's rated as 870. So he's got this incredible run of like critically acclaimed films. And 2046 is also supposed to be a loose follow-up to In the Mood for Love, right? Yeah, so you kind of have to actually go further back to even find his good run. You can't just really start at Chunking Express because Days of Being Wild, which came out about three or four years before, is also really good. I think that's somewhere around the 300 mark from when I wrote a review on it a couple of months back. Um, oh, wow. so that's that's you know very acclaimed that was the first film he made with uh christopher chris doyle and right. you know very similar kind of aesthetic um sort of you know with the wide angle wide angle lenses and the moving yeah. cameras and things like that and um, 2046 then is kind of it's it's a very abstract film it's it's a sort of semi-sequel to both days of being wild and in the mood for love but only in this, only in the sense that characters from these films play a part in it. Um, like the main character of 2046 is, is the same main character of in the mood for love, but honestly you could watch 2046 and you, you would not be any the wiser, even with me seeing a lot of Wong's filmography after watching 2046, I'm none the wiser. It's a very abstract film. I've often said about Wong Kar Wai, he, he shoots very simple films, but in very interesting abstract ways. But 2046 is a very abstract film shot in a very abstract way. It's very hard to grasp. Um, I, I would need to watch it two or three times to really get it. But oh, he has like pretty much all of his films, except for, you know, a couple of Wuxia ones and then his American one, which I haven't seen, but I heard is atrocious. Pretty much everything he's made, at least in Hong Kong, seems to just be a, an instant classic. That's interesting. So then he makes it, the same year as 2046. He makes an anthology piece with Soderbergh and Antonioni, which I have to see that, Eros. That was The Hand, is that right? The Hand? Uh, it's, it looks like it's called Eros. Oh, okay. Um, but yeah, it's got like an incredible cast. But then he, anyways, I, I don't want to go too much on this, my point, and then The Grandmaster. So but my point is that he has all these projects, but he has a lot of short films, and he hasn't actually done an incredible amount of feature films. But the ones that he has done seem to all be Again, other than the Witsia films, uh, love seems to be at the center of everything. So he seems to have, like most of his career, I guess, is, is just sort of exploring a lot of like, uh, like a very different takes on love and a very like unconventional kind of, da- sometimes dangerous, sometimes, you know, edgy, sometimes heartbreaking, but like all these different ways that people kind of love each other and find love, right? Yeah, love human connection. Even uh, like if you want to maybe maybe make it a broader 
point like sometimes they're not looking for romantic love per se but you know some kind of emotional connection and then with these two specifically then that that kind of ties that i think that theme is very true in all of this because like people love very messy in his movies and i think it's it, it makes for a good watch like there's no there's no typical kind of romantic like rhythms that you used to, you'd see in a movie before like this is a very messy style of love and it's it's like very imperfect and it's like there's nothing yeah like like uh polished about it which is i think it makes for a good watch yeah and like that that's kind of like if you look at his if we say his three main films so we say chunking express fallen angels in the mood for love so chunking express first story cop you know he's still obsessed with his ex-girlfriend and uh, he sort of meets this this hit woman, but they don't really they can't really connect really like they have like they just sort of chill out together. That's about it. Second story, yeah. you know, with um, with Tony Long and Fei Wong, again, t- you know, Tony Long has been broken up by his girlfriend. He kind of has his connection with with Fei Wong, but there's nothing explicitly romantic. They you know it's not like a rom com or anything like that. And then obviously Fallen Angels, as we've seen, we have, you know, the hitman, the hitman's sort of partner who wants to be with him, but he doesn't want to be with her. You have the mute who wants to fall in love, but doesn't have the emotional, um, emotional, what's the word, maturity to really yeah. properly pursue it. And then you have In the Mood for Love, which is about two people who maybe fall in love. At the very least, they become connected through the fact that both of their partners have been cheating on them. So, mm-hmm. you know, I don't want like, I don't want to say that his films are necessarily about love, but they're absolutely about wanting to connect with another person emotionally. And that's from, from all the Wong Kar films I've seen, that's always been a theme. It seems to be like, I said it in my review, it's almost ironic because if you think of Hong Kong and how dense it is in terms of population density, it's probably one of the most densely populated cities in the world, if not the most densely populated cities. Mm-hmm. But all of these films are about people who can't connect. You know, we, we look at these films and they're, they're sort of packed full of people. You know, people share little small hotel rooms or they share apartment buildings. Like in, in In the Mood for Love, married couples go in and move in with other people in, a, in an apartment and they just have one little room. You know, there's so many, it's like you're literally never more than a meter away from another human being, but yet all their characters just can't connect, you know, emotionally or, uh, you know, intellectually. They just, there's always these sort of barriers surrounding them, despite the fact that they're packed in like a can of sardines. I love that because especially, I'm thinking of the the scenes with him with his dad now with Fo Chimo when he's with his dad. And there's that really kind of funny and, and, and awkward scene where his dad's trying to use the bathroom yeah. and then he locks, he locks him in there. Yeah. But they're like, they're like inches from each other. I mean, he's like taking a shit like two feet from his face. It just happens. There just happens to be a door there. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> uh, but they're like, uh, so they're packed, completely packed on top of each other yet. That's not a requirement for connection. Yeah, I really like that point. Yeah, they they can't get each other. It's like despite the fact they literally share a bedroom, mm-hmm. and you know one defecates less than a meter away from the other just by a thin door, they <laughs> they still can't. They just don't get each other. You know, his dad is obviously emotionally unavailable because of what happened to his mom. He's mm-hmm. obviously emotionally stunted over you know past traumas. So despite the fact that they live and share the same bed in the same small cramped little room. 
they can't connect and it just it, it happens throughout all of his films and it's one of the main reasons I want to see Happy Together because it's actually about a romantic couple and it'd be nice to actually see a couple talk to each other for once um, because throughout his films they all just they just can't seem to they, they, they just never just never just find a nice jigsaw piece they just can't it's like it's like Wong Kar Wai presents Hong Kong as a city full of individual jigsaw pieces from a million different jigsaws. So mm. it's like he got a, he's got a million jigsaws. He takes one piece out from each and then throws them all together. And none of them are going to fit right because they're all from different jigsaws. I'm get, I may be getting way too abstract with this metaphor, but that's just the kind of best way I can put it because you just can't get the pieces to fit. But obviously there's so many people there. Just because there's so many people doesn't mean they're all going to fit together. Yeah, that like makes images. Oh, <laughs> fuck. <laughs> <laughs> At least they weren't playing a puzzle in the movie. <laughs> yeah, that would, you know, if, 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 if I ever see a character in a one car Wai movie doing a jigsaw puzzle, I'm renouncing all of his films. <laughs> That's so funny. That actually reminds me of this, this, the way you described that reminds me of this really sweet moment with his dad where he's watching the videos that, uh, that he was shooting of his dad. And it's the first time you see his dad smiling. And, and it's almost like his son had a voice uh, uh, through the video, through the camera. His son was like given a voice. And that like that was the thing that took to get that connection. And it was like a brief moment, but it made it really powerful. I teared up yeah. a little bit there. And it's, it's weird. I don't know if you guys, you guys watch Community? You Community fans? Yeah, I've watched, I've I've watched some of it. Yeah, so like... In season one, Abed, you know, the sort of character who, again, who's sort of maybe is like Asperger's or something, never really, never really say what exactly, you know, his condition is. But his father has a similar sort of breakthrough moment where Abed makes a short film about, you know, his parents' divorce. And his father, who was previously against him being a filmmaker, is now whole for it because he, you know, his son can finally sort of communicate properly. You know, he can express his emotions where he couldn't, he can't do it verbally. So maybe, maybe, maybe this, that's a reference to this. It's just, it's the same, same idea, really. Maybe that was a reference to this film. I wouldn't doubt it. Cause I, I remember like, it's been a long time to watch community, but I, I felt like they had some like decently deep cuts about like movie references from time to time. Yeah. Like, they're pretty good for it. Community is probably my favorite sitcom. So I've seen every episode at least sort of five, probably 10 times for a lot of other episodes so yeah they they are they're pretty sort of spot on with their pop culture references and stuff so yeah i only only just sort of thought about that now when you said it chris about this particular scene i wouldn't be surprised if that was a reference anything more on fallen angels no no i was uh i just let you guys go for a bit there i was like they know way more about him than i do <laughs> i just let them go All for right. it you know, I'm a, I'm a big W. W. Car, so I guess w, in the mood w, for w, love should be the next one I watch. Oh yeah, for sure. That was the first one I saw, and it blew me away. And then I watched it again a couple of couple of months back, and it's still just as good. Just don't watch the new version. Watch, okay, make watch sure the you watch the original alternate version. Yeah, because just the colors are just fucking so good. They're just See, that, that's the only thing I'm worried about. Like it's like if I really get into him, and I want the box set. I just. I'm gonna be upset. <laughs> like, yeah, that's the thing. Like, I I do want the box set just to own it, but I probably would never watch in the mood for love from the box set. Um, I'd probably just like import the single disc or something. Um, because they don't have a there's no region B release for 
except for the the box set. And I, I don't know is is he like was he the one who was insistent about not having both versions of the box set, or did Criterion mm-hmm. just not want to do it? I would be surprised yeah. if it wasn't him because I don't see why like Criterion owned the rights to his films. You know, they released the original cuts, so. I think if Criterion had their way, they probably would have included both, but I'm, it was probably him. I'd be surprised if it wasn't him. Do you remember that the statement that he put out? It was definitely him. Yeah, it was well, something I can't like, remember. Yeah, it was something along the lines of, oh, you know, we've something about rivers and that we're not the same man we were when we walked into the river this time. And that It was very poetic and everything like that, but basically his way of saying, you know, off book you, I like the film better this way. Was, and I struggle. Like I, I feel like we may have talked about this before. I can't remember. I but think like, we definitely always, did during an interview or something. Yeah, yeah. I, I I love the idea of like a filmmaker saying, you know, I can do whatever I want to my movie. That's fair enough. But like the preservation part of me is like, you should make both available. Well, it's the thing. Like, it, I don't think there would be no controversy if both were available in the box set, yeah. even as an extra alternative version, as a bonus feature. There would be no controversy. Nobody would be upset because they can easily readily available watch the original. But now, obviously, Chunking Express has been out of print for a while, and then eventually, in the mood for love, will probably go out of print, and then nobody will ever see unless you want to pay over the odds on on eBay. You know, so. Because I'll, I'll be surprised if they don't originally, if they don't leave the channel at some point as well. I was surprised they were still on the channel. I was absolutely dead certain that the original versions would be taken off the channel once they added the new versions on because they do that with every other film. And I think Criterion did that on purpose because they That's were so probably, they wanted, I'd say they wanted to keep the originals in the box set. Wong Kar Wai probably didn't, when they did the contract up, there was probably nothing in it about what would be on the channel or not. Because if you look at every other film that's gotten a remaster from Criterion and it goes onto the channel, the original version is always removed. Always removed whenever a new print becomes available, except for Wong Kar Wai's films. I can see that as part of the negotiations or something, saying like, look, we're going to do this box set the way you want it, but we have these other rights for blank years. Like, we give us these other rights for three years or whatever, you know? Yeah. Like, just like, let us keep it for a while because people really want to see the old version. Cool. So we're coming into the last segment of our podcast, which is always is any other business, just a time for us to plug something that we saw recently. It doesn't have to be on Criterion. It doesn't have to be good. You guys know the spiel. I say the same thing every week. Um, who wants to go first with any other business? I always go first. So I'm not going to go first on purpose this time. So who wants to go first with any other business? I can uh, I can tackle it first. Um, cool. I watched uh, a movie I'd been meaning to watch. It's on, uh, especially since, oh, what's the company? Blue Underground did a release for Dead and Buried. They had a, like a great release. looked awesome. I need to buy it. Uh, finally sat down and watched it and was really like blown away by it. It's probably like one of my favorite surprises of things I watched um, during spooky season. Um, essentially, it's about like, this town that I feel like this is a spoiler and it's not because it happens at the very beginning of the movie, but basically they are murdering people who come into town and the sheriff can't figure out what's going on. It sounds really basic, um, but it's got this like really intense mood to it. Like it really captures like this new England setting. Like you would think it's a Stephen King based on a Stephen King work, mm-hmm. just the way it is. Uh, anyone who's a fan of Stephen King, highly recommend it because I think it really captures like a small town feel in New England. 
Um, one of the things I thought was most fascinating is the very cover of it says, from the mind who brought you alien, which they're talking about Dan O'Bannon, where they say he's a writer of this. And he is in the most technical sense. They sent him a script to rewrite and he rewrote it and they didn't use it, but they wanted to ha- be able to use his name to advertise the film. So Dan O'Bannon literally had nothing to do with the movie um, because they didn't use anything he did. And uh, I just think that's great. I think that's a, I, I, that's a hilarious tactic that actually works because now that's what you see every time from the mind that brought you Alien. Um, and one thing, that, it has really cool body horror with it. Um, one of the things I thought was really cool is like they want blood to be so surprising when it happens because there's so many blues and greens that the director even changed like the backlights for cars to be purple just so you wouldn't ever associate anything with red except for blood. It's just a fascinating little movie. They put a lot of work into it. Um, if anyone hasn't seen it, likes kind of creepy little wicker man town sort of things. I think it's a fun watch. Ending's a little Sounds weird. Groovy. Yeah. Uh, I like this movie so much when I saw it uh, a long time ago that I, I had an idea for a screenplay that I actually wrote. It's horrible. I want to read it. No, no, it's not. It's not. Uh, it's not good. But it was based off of a a, a town of where people uh, had they had the world's longest stoplight, and they stopped people at the light, and they and they gave them a ticket if they ran the light, and they gave them a choice of coming to listen to a pitch of Rastafarianism or, or to get out of the ticket, or or they gave them a ticket. And, I just uh, really want to read this now. Please let me read this. It's really bad. Um, <laughs> but I was fascinated at the idea of like getting people into town and then and then doing something with them. My my, my script doesn't involve killing, but um, yeah. Oh, and I did want to note Robert England is in the movie for like really small part, which you know if you want to see him before Freddy Krueger. <laughs> and, and also, if you become a ten dollar patron. Chris will make his uh, script available for you to read. <laughs> New patron tier coming soon. You can. <laughs> I'll, I'll even I'll try and like digitize all the DVD of the short films I made when I was seventeen, and that that can be that can be something we'll put up as well. <laughs> okay. I have a DVD of them, but I don't know how to put them on. A computer so <laughs> that'll be a new patron tier where we share the terrible things that we've created oh i have well, one on a flash drive somewhere i can find <laughs> um well so speaking of uh, horrible things that turned into really good uh there's you know we we talked to two different people now in our we've interviewed two different people that have talked about cat three films from hong kong and one of my favorite cat three films slash maybe one of my favorite movies ever is uh, Ricky O, the story of Ricky. Have you all ever seen that? Nope, I've heard you talk about it. Yeah, uh, yeah it's amazing. So Eddie Films just did this incredible release of it and it came in and I, I put it on um, and it pretty much lived up to my memory. It's probably like a little bit more cartoonish than I had remembered uh, in terms of like bad special effects, but uh, it doesn't matter. I love it. I'm, I'll love that movie forever. It's um, it's amazing. And it's so bloody, so over the top, Corey. Uh, it's got a lot of like this guy, Ricky, when he punches somebody, he punches through their skin and they make like the, the body effects like kind of squishy. So it's kind of gross, even when he punches in and, and gets a lot of guts and blood everywhere. So just, it's great. <laughs> um, and then I finally finished the Freddy vs. Jason thing by watching um, 
the, the remake, the Friday the 13th remake. And I wish we had more time because I want to hear y'all's opinion on that. We can do it later, but I actually liked it. I thought it was a good, it was a good horror movie. The remake's actually pretty solid. Yeah, I don't, I, I don't remember not. I, I saw it when it first came out, and I don't remember not hating. I remember not hating it. Like Jason's like proper scary in it. Like you know, he's, mm-hmm. he's yeah. Derek Mears did awesome. Like he's yeah. a really good Jason. Yeah, he's yeah. he's he's scary in that film. He's he's like a proper. It's not like a cartoony sort of Jason where it's like, oh, oh, it's Jason. We better run. Like, like this dude will like you would be proper shit your pants scared with this. I will Jason. say the first 20 minutes of the remake is probably the best interpretation of Jason. Just like that first 20 minutes where he's still like in the bag head and he's like oh, stringing yeah. up the one girl on the sleeping bag over the fire. That's awesome. Need to rewatch it. I do need to it's, rewatch it. It's all before the credits. So like before the credits, they do this cool thing where it's like um Oh yeah, you're watching a Jason film, but they turn up all the violence up pretty high, and it's it's great. Yeah, it was a really yeah. good watch. And I won't make this tangent long, but Michael Bay, who was the producer of the movie, walked out of the original showing, which makes it better because it was too <laughs> violent and too it had too much nudity. Wow, it does have a lot of both. I can't believe the director of Terminator thought it was too violent. That's crazy. <laughs> um... Don't encourage Chris. <laughs> Uh, so we'll close off with the film that I'm picking so uh, I think we touched on it earlier noir, it's November, so it's time to watch your film noirs so I watched one that I wanted to watch for a long time it didn't have a region B release and it wasn't streaming anywhere it finally came onto the channel and it's uh, Jacques Tournier's uh, Out of the Past with Robert Mitchum and you know I've heard incredible things it's sort of always lauded as one of if maybe not the best film noir uh, it really lived up to the hype it was Absolutely incredible. Uh, Robert Mitchum plays the good guy, unlike uh, where I'm used to seeing him in Night of the Hunter. He's the good guy in this as a sort of private detective who gets out of the business and he's sort of hiding out in a sleepy California town, but he gets dragged back in by um, Kirk Douglas, who's playing a villain for once. So they kind of switch types in this. Uh, Kirk Douglas is a pretty menacing, if not short in comparison like he's kind of like menacing in terms of you know like how much power he has but he's not exactly physically imposing when standing next to Robert Mitchum who kind of towers over him a bit but um uh, yeah character this is a villain um but this yeah the film is fantastic basically he's trying to get him in rope him in to do a sort of one last job but Robert Mitchum kind of figures out pretty early into the job he's going to be in, he's, he's being framed uh, for something you know to try and get him back for for stabbing him in the back previously i won't get too much into the plot beats because it's one of those films that has lots of nice little twists and plot changes throughout that you know keeps keeps you sort of gripped uh, without being overly dense and confusing like you know things like um what's the one uh, the big sleep where i i genuinely know does, i don't have any idea what's happening for any sort of five minute period during that film it's cool as shit but i have no idea what happens in that movie um, but this, this is kind of different where you can follow it. It's kind of like Chinatown in, in that kind of respect where, you know, things are happening at a fast pace, but it's still sort of easy to follow despite being twisty. Um, but this one, like the reason why I kind of liked it so much was the dialogue. Um, it's really sort of poetic, but really nihilistic. And it has probably, the, the, there's a line in this film, there's a kind of interchange between Robert Mitchum and the female lead whose name has completely escaped me. Um, that basically really kind of sums up film noir and it's sort of nihilistic, fatalistic sort of views. And mm-hmm. the exchange is, so she says to him, I don't want to die. And he retorts, neither do I, baby, but if I have to, I'm going to die last. 
And I think that just sums up film noir for me. As I, I, I just thought that line was awesome. So uh, hey, Adam, out of the past, uh, it's great. Could you do me a favor? Yeah. Recommend me, like not right now, like think it over, get mm-hmm. you some sleep. Recommend mm-hmm. me like 10 noir films I can watch this month. I'll okay. Try to make it 10. Yeah, I can definitely do that. I will happily build you up a, a little. I already know what the first sort of like three or four are going to be, even just popping into my head now, but I'll happily make you 10. Sweet. Thank what? you. Make sure you include the one that's in snow that you talked about where you like, it's all in snow. Oh, um, that was kind of more of a Western, but that, that will actually, that will, that will suit you down to the ground. Zach. That was part of, um, that was part of a little sort of collection that Criterion did last year. Uh, Western Noirs. What was the name out. of it? Uh, Day of the Outlaw. Okay. Day of the Outlaw. It's, it's a Western, but it's very much in the vein of a film noir. Gotcha. Um, if that makes sense. So, but it is a Western. I, I would, I would, I wouldn't call it a straight film noir, but um, it definitely has a sort of same sort of fatalistic, nihilistic, black and white atmosphere uh, that film noirs would have. But I'll definitely make you a list of 10 that I think are like of actual noirs. And then I'll throw that in as a nice little bonus if you can get your hands on it. That wraps up this week's episode of They Live By Film. If you want to read more of our thoughts, visit theylivebyfilm.com. And you can also follow our Letterboxd, Reddit, and Instagram accounts from the links in the description. For now, take care. Take care.